The week began with much of the federal government closed for business. The 69-hour partial shutdown ended late Monday, and the deal that reopened the government came with a promise from the Republican leadership in Congress to begin debate on immigration reform by February 8th. On Friday, President Trump talked about one of his immigration priorities in a speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. America is a cutting-edge economy, but our immigration system is stuck in the past. We must replace our current system of extended family chain migration with a merit-based system of admissions that selects new arrivals based on their ability to contribute to our economy, to support themselves financially, and to strengthen our country. I'm Amy Scott, in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And that's where we'll start. Much of the recent debate about immigration in the U.S. has centered on the fate of DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The program is designed to protect unauthorized immigrants who enter the country as children from deportation. But how many legal immigrants this country accepts is also under debate. And it's not the first time, says Muzaffar Chishti of the Migration Policy Institute. America has always been ambivalent about immigration. For a nation of immigrants, that may sound odd, but that is part of our history. There's been debate over immigration in American policy as long as there's been American policy. George Washington thought that we did not need any more immigrants except a few, you know, skilled carpenters. We had campaigns against the Irish. The Know-Nothing Party was established in the 1840s purely on the basis of keeping Irish out. 1882, Congress enacted the infamous Chinese Exclusion Act. In 1921, Congress imposed numerical limits on immigrants from European countries. Fewer immigrants means fewer workers. Uh, First of all, if you want to be a super economic power, you need labor market growth. You can't have economic growth without labor market growth. So let's look forward. A proposed bill that President Donald Trump has endorsed would cut the number of green cards awarded each year in half. And those with more skills and education would get priority for the fewer slots. To walk us through what that could mean for the economy, we have Kimberly Burham, Managing Director at the Penn Wharton Budget Model. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So at the Wharton budget model, you have these simulators, right, that try to model how different immigration policies would play out in the future. How does that modeling work? We observe hundreds of thousands of U.S. households, and we see how they work and save and get jobs and get education and eventually retire. So it's like a crystal ball that relies on a lot of data. Yeah, an extensive list of data sources. (laughs) One immigration bill that President Trump has supported is the RAISE Act, which would cut in half the number of legal immigrants coming into the country. Uh, It would also move from a family reunification model to a merit-based system that awards points for education and skills. How do you see that playing out in the economy if it were to pass? The effect of reducing the number of immigrants coming in counterbalances the effect of increasing the skill level. And so by 2040, GDP would actually be 2% smaller than it would otherwise be if we just kept our current immigration policy. 
You did find, though, that wages would rise slightly. What would drive that? So wages would rise slightly, um, but only by a very small amount. So, for instance, um, in 2027, the average hourly wage would be $42.12 instead of $42.02. Since it only Ah. increases wages um, by a very small amount, it doesn't induce very many um, domestic workers to enter the labor force or to work more. And so it wouldn't be enough to offset the lost work and savings of the immigrant workers who are no longer entering the country. So the sponsors of this bill say it would protect American workers and increase wages. Uh, But you find a much more mixed picture than that. And other research has shown that immigration actually increases wages for most workers, with the exception of the least educated. Um, So how do you square those two arguments? New immigrants um, are very highly attached to the labor force. They're working, um, they're working longer hours than the domestic population. And so that's one of the reasons that um, when immigrants come in, they really start to um, contribute to long-run investment and savings and growth. You know, when the data show that the economy overall benefits from immigration, that most American workers actually see their wages rise. Where do you think the impression comes uh, among many uh, voters that immigration is hurting them? So, I mean, other studies, you know, do show that new immigrants can compete with other new immigrants. And so maybe that gives the impression. And also, of course, ours is taking a a thousand foot view um, of the whole entire economy. And so we're not really speaking to what might be happening in particular areas. So people may be feeling uh, in their own experience that uh, their wages have have gone down uh, with an increase in immigration, um, whereas the bigger picture may be different. Yes. You've run tons of different scenarios on your simulators. Uh, Have you found a a sweet spot for the American economy in terms of um, immigration reform? So we find that we get the highest positive results when you increase annual legal immigration and also when you increase the share of skilled immigrants. When you have more people coming in, again, they're working, their immigrants are highly attached to the labor force, and so they're going to be adding to our savings, which increases the amount of investment and then GDP and growth in the long run. Kimberly Burham, Managing Director at the Penn Wharton Budget Model. Thank you so much. Thanks. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. I'm Amy Scott. It's that time of year again. 57 seconds to go, and two for the tie. Tom takes the step, quick throw to Amendola, screen left. It's a tie game in Super Bowl 51. I can't believe it. The place is rocking. Don't ever count Tom Brady out. The Philadelphia Eagles take on the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 52 next weekend. 
And yes, aside from the copious consumption of wings, chips, and beer at Super Bowl watching parties, this annual meeting of sporting minds—well, it's big business. Andrew Zimbalist is a sports economist at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. He has this week's five things you need to know, starting with point one: people love the Super Bowl, but is football as popular as it once was? Everybody does love the Super Bowl, and it's probably as prominent culturally as Thanksgiving dinner. However, the popularity of football seems to be waning in the United States. Two years ago, NFL television ratings fell eight percent. Some football optimists attributed the decline to competition from the U.S. presidential election in that year. However, in 2017, without an election, regular season ratings dipped another nine point seven percent. And in the division championship this year, the games were down 16 percent in ratings. But this is the Super Bowl we're talking about, and plenty of televisions are expected to be tuned in. Fan leakage, notwithstanding, it is still anticipated that more than 100 million Americans are expected to tune in to watch the Patriots and the Eagles play on February 4th. A lot of people watch for the halftime show. It just sort of takes over. Your household on on Super Bowl Sunday. To point number three, as Andrew Zimbalist says, it's not just about the game. Lots of people also watch the ads, which are expensive. Any company that wants to have a 30 second ad spot during the game will pay an average of over 5.1 million dollars. It's slightly above where it was last year. And on top of that, of course, the companies have to pay to produce the ads themselves, which adds several million more dollars. And do those ads pay off? Well, you know what? They keep doing it.、Uh, so it suggests that at least for certain kinds of companies, companies that are selling、uh, certain types of consumer products, or companies that are in a growth spurt and are pushing to make their product better known, they seem to benefit from this. Point four: What's the Super Bowl worth to the host city?、Uh, they're going to be playing the Super Bowl in U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. The stadium just opened last year, and it cost 1.06 billion dollars to build, with roughly half of that money coming from the public coffers. So, one of the carrots that the NFL offers to cities that build new stadiums is the possibility to host the Super Bowl, and that would suggest that. Citizens of Minneapolis and citizens of other cities that build new stadiums to host the Super Bowl, that they expect the Super Bowl will have a very positive economic impact on their city. But are those expectations justified? Well, here's point five. One cannot expect a substantial economic impact.、Uh, all of the empirical, all of the scholarly evidence suggests otherwise. For southern cities that host the Super Bowl, what happens is Super Bowl fans come to town, but they displace all of the visitors who are there to play golf or to play tennis or to go swimming or to go fishing. So there's no net gain in visitors. For Minneapolis, not a vacation hotspot in early February, there will probably be a net gain in hotel capacity utilization. But non-football fans will vacate the Twin Cities to avoid the traffic and the commotion. Local businesses will be disrupted by the downtown city streets dedicated to producing the so-called NFL experience, and the NFL requires its events to be exempt from local sales taxes. You put it all together, and Minneapolis will experience very little economic boost, perhaps on the order of ten or twenty million dollars if they're lucky. Well, that's not nothing. 
So that's it. Five things you need to know about the business of the Super Bowl. Thanks to Andrew Zimbalist, a sports economist at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. You can check out some other five things you need to know about Bitcoin, finding a financial advisor, even corporate earnings reports. You'll find them all at Marketplace.org. The markets may not be open on the weekend, but they're always on our minds here at Marketplace. This weekend, let's take a look at some cryptocurrency news by the numbers with Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Tony, get us started. Thanks, Amy. Our first number is... One. That's the number of major cryptocurrency sports sponsorships. The first deal was inked earlier this week. London soccer club Arsenal signed a deal with the U.S. online gaming company CashBet for an undisclosed amount. The sponsorship comes just as CashBet gears up to launch its cryptocurrency CashBet coin with an ICO, an initial coin offering. Two. That's how many pounds of bananas one banana coin represents. Yep, banana coin. It's a new cryptocurrency based on the export price of one kilogram of bananas, which are growing on a plantation in Laos. About 3.4 million banana coin tokens have been sold, as of earlier this week, at a price of 50 cents each. Speaking of which... 7.5 million. That's about how many dollars 50 cent forgot he made. The rapper totally spaced on the 700 Bitcoin he accepted from customers who bought his 2014 album, Animal Ambition. If he's looking for a name change, 50 Cent could start going by 0.000045 Bitcoin. This week in Baltimore, the school board approved a new plan to fund city schools based on poverty rates. Previously, funds were distributed based on test scores, with schools getting extra money for advanced students, as well as for low-performing students who might need more services. The new plan aims to address the ways that poverty affects student achievement, which raises a question. Can more money fix what's been called the education debt? Jack Schneider, Assistant Professor of Education at the College of the Holy Cross, is here to discuss with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Amy. Can you explain this concept of education debt? Sure. The idea, essentially, is that not every student comes into school uh, with the same kinds of background and experience, uh, that not every student is equally ready to learn, and that that's a result of social and economic history in the United States. And so students who have been historically marginalized are going to come into school less advantaged and less privileged. And therefore, uh, it's important to invest more in those students if the goal is to produce equal educational outcomes. And you argue that that debt follows them throughout their education, not just as they begin, but to the end of the pipeline as well? Yes, if it isn't dealt with quite early. If it's not dealt with, it's something that actually will exacerbate over time uh, as students, for instance, develop negative self-concepts, meaning that they don't see themselves as being successful students. Um, It certainly is possible that very strong 
robust intervention early on can do a great deal. But it's also important to recognize that at every stage, some students are getting more support at home uh, as well as in their neighborhoods uh, than other students are. So in theory, Baltimore City schools should start receiving equitable funding rather than equal funding based on poverty. How will this change things for students? You know, unfortunately, my guess is that it won't change things dramatically. Uh, You know, a few hundred dollars per student may not make a tremendous amount of difference. And there's a really important contextual piece here, which is that the state has the capacity to make up a lot of the difference. But Maryland schools are underfunded relative to schools in someplace like where I am in Massachusetts. Uh, So in Maryland, schools that have a 0% poverty rate have about $1,000 more than schools with a 30% poverty rate. That's not a, a huge percentage of students in poverty, but it's a significant difference in terms of dollars. Whereas in Massachusetts, schools with a 30% poverty rate have a couple thousand dollars more to work with per student. Um, that's enough to make a pretty big difference in terms of the kinds of supports they're able to deliver to students. And yet, Baltimore spends more per student than almost any district in the country, around $16,000 per pupil. How do you square that? You know, some people will look at spending like that and they'll say, you know, Baltimore's got more money than my local suburban community. That ought to be enough. Uh, Of course, it truly depends on the place. It depends on, you know, what kind of support students are coming into school with. Uh, The students who are being educated in Baltimore often do not have the same kind of at-home or neighborhood supports that other students have. And so even an extra couple thousand dollars uh, may not do what it takes. What do we know about how funding increases affect student performance? There's been a lot of research into this. Uh, Some studies have found that funding has a kind of negligible influence, but often that's because it's being studied in places where funding is not being directed in ways that will address uh, what you know we've been referring to as the education debt. Um, but more robust studies have found that funding does make a difference. It makes a substantial difference. I'm also curious about students in the middle, I guess both academically and on the income spectrum. If more funding is, to, is going to low-income kids, um, as well as to kids who are high achievers, you know, the gifted and talented, uh, are those kids in the middle getting left behind? You know, it's a good question. The Baltimore plan uh, got me thinking about that a bit. And, you know, it presumes that a sort of standard education works for the kids in the middle and that whatever we're doing right now is fine for them. And I think it's important to, you know, interrogate that assumption and to think about all kinds of learners and what it takes to deliver the kind of education that works for everybody. Um, One of the things that we will need to do is expand the way we are measuring school performance. Standardized tests are not a particularly good tool for doing that. Um, And so the more we can move away from that and towards more authentic measures of student performance, uh, as well as measuring other kinds of outcomes, and particularly long-term outcomes, we'll be able to tell how all of our kids are doing, and then be able to try to design different kinds of interventions that will support every student. 
All right. Jack Schneider is an education historian at College of the Holy Cross. He wrote about education debt in the Atlantic this week. And Jack co-hosts an education podcast called Have You Heard? Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. On last week's show, Marketplace Weekend producer Peter Balanon-Rosen brought us a story about dual enrollment classes in New York City. Here's a taste. In 10th grade, they have the opportunity to take one college course. In 11th grade, it can be two to four college courses. In 12th grade, it could be two or more college courses. Hope Barter is Energy Tech's principal. The college classes start young. We're not talking AP classes here. We're talking class with a college professor. It helps me to think more outside of the box than in the box. You have to use like experience or common knowledge to solve these problems. 10th grader Ray Adyasin digs the challenge. He keeps telling himself, Do your work. It's going to pay off someday. Dual enrollment classes do have a payoff. Students are more likely to graduate high school, go on to college, and earn more credits than others, according to a recent study from Columbia University. And that's something districts are willing to bet big on. You can listen to the whole piece at Marketplace.org. A number of you reached out with your thoughts and stories about dual enrollment. In an email, David Kays wrote, I am adjunct faculty teaching history and religion at a small community college that relies on high school students for over 50% of its enrollment. As I go into my third year, I'm amazed at the quality and maturity of several of the students I get to work with. I'm also disappointed at the large number of students who are not prepared for college coursework. Speaking for parents, Candace York wrote on Facebook, It's not for everyone, but the payoff can be huge. One of our daughters graduated high school with her first semester of college already done, free. Another daughter graduated high school with a whole first year of college done, free. Which means that her normally five-year degree will be done in four years or less. Jacqueline Swope offered a student's perspective. My high school in Michigan offered one dual enrollment course in math. It allowed me to skip over that requirement at my liberal arts university when I got there. But I was crestfallen to discover that my friends from Washington were coming in with several dual enrollment credits, so many that they were practically transfer students. I was upset that I didn't have the opportunity to have these extra credits, which allowed them more freedom to take classes they were interested in and place them higher in the line to both sign up for courses during registration periods and to sign up for housing options. On Facebook, Micheline Maynard added this. I finished my freshman year while I was a high school senior. I started the summer before senior year, graduated early from high school, and then went two more college semesters before I went away to school. It saved my mom an enormous amount on room and board and introduced me to college life. But Liz Gavin added a note of caution. In some circumstances, if you fail the college classes in high school, you can be ineligible for financial aid at the local college you took the classes from. Liz will look into that. We also received comments about a story we covered a couple of weeks ago on food deserts. A caller named Julie reached us on our voicemail line. I am in a food desert because... Someone decided to close down a grocery store to put alcohol there. Food's more important than alcohol. I cannot drive, and I don't even earn that much money to get to places. Find out why we have to have alcohol in so many places. Julie, that's one we'll look into as well. And Kyle Williams had a question. I was wondering what is the economic loss or gain of quitting social media, or Facebook in particular, Has this been quantified? I'd love to hear this covered on the show. 
Kyle will add this one to the pile. If you have comments, questions, or thoughts on anything you hear on the show, you can reach us via email at weekend at marketplace.org. On Facebook, look for Marketplace Business News, or you can leave us a message on our voicemail line. The number is 1 800 648 This past week marked the 10th anniversary of a turning point for the U.S. economy when the Fed made a surprise interest rate cut to try to prevent the economy from slumping into recession. We know how that worked out. Throughout 2018, Marketplace will explore how the financial crisis and its aftermath changed America. It's a project we call Divided Decade. If you missed some of our coverage this week, here's a little recap, starting with a look from the inside. Randall Krosner was a Federal Reserve governor in 2008. He spoke with the Marketplace Morning Report's David Brancaccio. It was an incredibly challenging time. We were having board meetings and all sorts of meetings all through the weekends for many organizations. We tried to have them survive until Friday and then we would work frantically over the weekend to try to prevent something from spreading. Confidence was dropping very rapidly. That was reflected in downward pressure in stock markets. There were lots of concerns about the housing market. And so there are a whole bunch of factors that were coming together. It was not a pretty beginning to 2008. One would hope you had an emergency playbook that you could open to know a protocol to follow in an emergency like this. Was that the case? Something like this really hadn't happened since the 1930s. And Ben Bernanke, myself, and one of the other governors had studied the Great Depression and looked at what the Fed did and, most importantly, didn't do. In the 1930s, the Fed stood by, did nothing, as the unemployment rate shot to over 20 percent, GDP fell by 30 percent, the price level fell by a third. We were not going to make that mistake. Kai Rizdahl tackled the issue of home ownership and foreclosure with the CEO of Fannie Mae, Timothy Mayopoulos. He joined the company just months after it was taken over by the federal government and shared what's changed when it comes to mortgages and risk. I have no doubt that private capital ought to play the primary role of backing the housing finance system. Say that again. Here's a guy who runs Fannie Mae saying private capital ought to be doing it. Private capital ought to be be the primary source of funding for the the housing markets in the United States. And in fact, the innovations that we've been a big part of since conservatorship was imposed nine years ago have contributed to that. So if you think historically, Fannie Mae has this enormous balance sheet. We're making all these loans. We have 18 million mortgage loans on our balance sheet. Historically, we would have held all of that credit risk for the life of those assets. Today, we don't do that. We now transfer a very significant part of that credit risk to private capital. In other words, we're essentially getting reinsurance on what we have. So people have the impression that Fannie and Freddie are continuing to take all this risk. We still take some risk, but we are transferring a very, very big part of that risk to private capital. 
You can listen to more from these interviews at marketplace.org slash divided decade. As part of this project, we're also looking at how the crisis changed people on very personal levels, their spending habits, their outlooks, their next steps. We've got stories from around the country. And today we hear from Stephen Kars in Atlanta, Georgia. In 2008, I was working at AIG. I had just taken a job, I guess, in 2007. I was a product analyst, and it was a great job. I learned a whole lot. And then in 2008, the recession kind of happened. And then by 2009, it affected the part of the company that I was in. When the layoffs were happening, it kind of happened in groups. And it was just very sad is the closest word I can think of to kind of say goodbye in like these mass groups. When I sensed layoff coming, I did kind of start to think like, all right, my options are basically like double down and get another insurance job or kind of try to have a story to tell. My oldest brother is an anthropologist and he was doing his field work in Latin America and I would go visit him with my other brother, Nick. We kind of fell in love with the paleta, which is the Spanish word for popsicle, and the difference being really good ingredients and interesting flavor combinations. And we daydreamed of one day opening a business that did something similar in in Atlanta. But it was definitely like a daydream. It was not like pen-to-paper business plan or anything like that. I talked about it for six months, and I was working on names and logos and flavors and all that stuff. A lot of people were... Like, this is not going to work, for sure. Nick had a good job as a lawyer. I said, I'd love to do this with you. I think it would be a lot of fun. And we did walk around and calculate how many pops we would really have to sell in order for it to make sense. I remember that being, like, kind of intimidating. But he agreed to do it, and my dad wrote a letter before he quit his job urging him not to. Nick and I started this company, King of Pops, and... I certainly couldn't tell you why it did work, but it did. I think the recession was difficult, and I think a lot of people that had spent a lot of time and money on specific education didn't end up where they, they kind of planned on ending up. But I don't think it was necessarily a bad thing. There's a handful of business owners that I'm close with, all that kind of started businesses in this same kind of one-year period as me, that have been very successful. And I think it was kind of a, an interesting response to the recession and to this desire to have a bit more control over what you're doing. I guess if I learned a lesson from it, it would just be that, like, things are going to be okay, but you certainly cannot imagine how they're going to be okay. Stephen Kars's business, King of Pops, has become an Atlanta staple. And you can see photos of Stephen and his popsicle empire on Instagram at MarketplaceAPM. Tell us how the financial crisis changed you with the hashtag HowWeChanged. It's all part of our year-long series, Divided Decade. Almost three weeks ago now, rain triggered massive mudslides in the hillside community of Montecito, a wealthy enclave 90 miles north of Los Angeles in Santa Barbara County. 
That disaster came on the heels of the largest wildfire in California history. The mudslide killed at least 21 people. Hundreds of homes were damaged and tons of mud and debris spread everywhere, including on a major Southern California freeway. Marketplace reporter Aaron Schrank spent a few days in Montecito looking at the cleanup efforts there. Aaron, good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Amy. So describe the feeling right now in Montecito. What is it like there? Well, I was able to get to the area about a week ago now, and I should mention I had to take a three-hour detour from here in Los Angeles to get there because at that time, a stretch of the 101 freeway that's typically traveled by more than 100,000 cars per day was still covered in mud and debris, and that not only disrupted commutes but also caused traffic problems for hundreds of work trucks that uh, have begun hauling debris away from the impacted area really around the clock. So that part of the cleanup is completed, the 101, but crews are now really just beginning the process of removing the debris from the rest of the hillside. And it's safe to say that county officials have really never seen an event quite like this. Uh, That's what Santa Barbara County Public Works Director Tom Fayram told me. The enormity of this thing that we call a debris flow that is a mixture of logs and rocks and, and, and everything coming down is just, it's, it's something that's indescribable to even see. And then, of course, you look at the devastation it caused, and it's, it's just very heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, people are, are dealing with the loss of their loved ones in the midst of this enormous cleanup. Can you describe at all what the recovery area in Montecito looks like right now? Yeah, as Tom said, it is certainly hard to describe, but in the hardest hit parts, some homes have been completely ripped from their foundations. There are power lines and trees that are cracked and down. Massive boulders have rolled through. Uh, In an event like this, debris can come down the mountain like a freight train at speeds of as high as 40 miles per hour. And so plenty of homes are full of mud, certainly, but the cleanup priority right now, especially for the federal government, is actually clearing tons of rock from massive debris basins that were filled up by this event, really to prepare for, for any more rain. And that debris basin work won't be completed until the end of February, even as trucks move really around the clock to do that work. Uh, Workers are also clearing roads and creeks, but nobody's even begun to remove debris from private property yet. Wow. And where does all this stuff go? Where are the crews putting it? Yeah, it's a good question because uh, officials there are really scrambling to figure out where to put it, where to dump all this rock and mud and other stuff. Local landfills can't handle it, so some of it's actually just being stored for now at a local fairgrounds, for example. The Army Corps of Engineers doing that debris basin work that I mentioned is sending its trucks 50 miles away to a landfill, which certainly adds a lot of time to an already logistically difficult operation of hauling rock out of a limited access hillside community like Montecito. Uh, Officials even got an emergency order to dump some of the finer dirt from the hillside on local beaches. Uh, A county environmental planner named Seth Shank was overseeing things at one of those beaches where bulldozers were pushing dirt into the surf. Uh, And he told me that this is necessary because there's just way more debris than any regional facilities can handle right now. Basically, 90% of the material is on private property. And so there is a huge volume of material still out there that's going to have to be dealt with. And any idea when that will start to happen? Well, there's no timeline yet. Authorities uh, really want to be careful and are urging homeowners to be patient because they don't want the hillside clogged with even more work trucks that would make cleanup more of a headache. Uh, They say a plan for private disposal will be announced next week. And so I spoke with a lot of homeowners at a local assistance center and community information meetings who were asking about next steps, like this guy, Charles Newman. We are confronted with a situation where we have probably half an acre of mud, three to four feet deep, and what to do with it, what to do about it. 
Some of these homeowners are wrangling with their insurance companies to cover these damage and cleanup costs. Mudslides are technically floods for most insurance purposes, but since this was a disaster created by another disaster, the the wildfires, there should be special provisions in play so that insurance covers the mudslide damage. And actually, in the wake of this disaster, there's legislation proposed in California to require insurance companies to do so. All right, Marketplace's Aaron Schrank describing what is just... An unimaginable situation in Montecito, California. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Amy. We're going to stay with recovery after disaster for a little while. Back in November, we brought you a series of reports from Puerto Rico looking at the island's recovery efforts after Hurricane Maria. Aside from persistent problems with power, public health, and people leaving the island, another crisis looms, housing. Since Maria, there's been a temporary moratorium on home foreclosures, but many of those agreements have expired or will soon. To explain the situation, we reached Ricardo Ramos-Gonzalez in San Juan. He's a legal aid coordinator at the University of Puerto Rico's School of Law. Welcome. Thank you for having me. After Hurricane Maria, what happened to abandoned properties and homes that had mortgages? So those people who left to the state, already more than 200,000, many of them maybe will not come back. So they will be subject if they don't continue to pay to go through the initial foreclosure process. But there have been some moratoria on foreclosures, right, either through the federal government or through private banks. But I understand those are um, either expiring now or expiring soon. What happens then? Okay, this is a situation. All loans that are FHA, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, the moratorium on foreclosures will end by the end of March. All those mortgages which are in the uh, bank portfolios. Some of them they gave until December 31st. Some of them owned by investors in the U.S., hedge funds, speculators, etc. Those they didn't, didn't give any moratoria at all. But already clients are receiving uh, letters from uh, their banks or those in courts are receiving motions from the lawyers asking for the process to continue. So the bomb is ticking, so it's going to be hard. Before Maria, uh, there was a possibility or potential of more than 100,000 foreclosures in Puerto Rico. Like last year, 2016, there were 15 people that lost their homes every day. Uh, In 2017, it was up to 17 every day. So now, I don't know what's going to happen. So what we're trying to do, is to see if we can get uh, the extension of the moratorium. FHA, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac, they can extend that to 12 months without any law whatsoever. And also we're hoping that there is a local law that will start a moratorium for all banks uh, for 12 months and you know let people recover themselves. Now, during, those, during a moratorium on mm. foreclosures, are people still racking up debt? Are they missing payments? Or in some cases, have the the payments themselves been suspended? Yeah, the problem was, or is, that some banks, that they gave you the three-month moratorium of of forbearance on the payments, right? And then they asked you for the whole three months at one lump sum, 
plus the current month and the rules for each bank, they change. We don't have a, you know, like a uniformity on this. I wonder if you could talk about the potential impact on Puerto Rican banks. Obviously, there's some big multinational banks that are involved, and you mentioned um, FHA mm-hmm. loans, but small banks that maybe can't afford to cut their losses here. I imagine their deposits are down as fewer people are working and, and saving. Yes, yes, that's true. But in terms of uh, mortgages, after the Great Recession, banks have sold to investors 70% of their portfolio. They would not uh, have a great harm of having a, a few months of people not paying or not foreclosing. So you coordinate a le- legal aid clinic. What kind of legal options do people have? Usual bargaining with the bank. But if you don't have any income, I mean, there's not much bargaining you can do, right? I mean, just imagine this like a war zone or an economic war where a lot of people lost their jobs, uh, 40% still without power, thousands of small businesses have closed. I mean, it's a disaster. So you cannot deal with this like usual business. What do you think it will take to get the housing market in Puerto Rico even close to stable again? Well, that's difficult to say because the problem, main problem we have here is that only 39 to 40% of the population is in the workforce. So in order for that to happen, you need to revitalize the economy. And in this situation where right now, like a colony of the U.S., it's almost impossible because we cannot do any kind of uh, transactions or treaties with any other country. Uh, Everything has to go through the U.S., so we're tied up. Ricardo Ramos-Gonzalez is Legal Aid Clinic Coordinator at the University of Puerto Rico School of Law. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Amy. Thank you for having me. We all have a financial life, but what does that look like when you're in the public eye? That's where the Marketplace Quiz comes in, when authors, musicians, and other creative people share their thoughts on money and work. Hey, I'm Ben McKean. I play bass for Imagine Dragons. And I am Dan Reynolds, and I sing for Imagine Dragons. And we're going to take a little quiz. So Ben, fill in the blank. Money can't buy you happiness but it can buy you. I'm going to go with it can buy you a moment's respite from everything when it gets all crazy. You can find a way to, you know, send your dog off to the kennel and go get a massage for a moment when when everything gets a little too loud and crazy. Well, Dan, in a future life, if you could do it all over again, what would your career be? I've thought quite a bit about this, actually. This is going to sound really dark, and and so I'm sorry, but I'm trying to be very honest. I've always been really fascinated with murder cases. Yeah, so I so serial killer. Yeah, (laughs) so yeah, exactly. No, I I would like to. I'd like to get involved in some sort of homicide detective role to some degree. I don't. I'm. I'm not looking to to use a gun. I don't think I could ever fire a gun at someone uh, or 
take someone's life. I think that sounds too overwhelming for me. But the thought of helping a family or helping someone, you know, who has a loved one that is, has uh, lost their life to kind of figure out what happened there. I know it sounds like a 14-year-old boy, you know, but I'm kind of a 14-year-old boy in a 30-year-old's body. So I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah, I think that uh, I could be happy with a career as a park ranger, something like that, you know, being very isolated and being in touch with nature. That's, I think, where I feel most centered when I'm not on the road is when I'm by myself, like in a grove of redwoods. And uh, spending some more time with that would be a welcome, a welcome thing in my life. I could see you being a really great park ranger. Yeah, got to protect the squirrels. (laughs) Um, Okay, Ben, what is the hardest part about your job that no one knows? I think probably one of the hardest parts is... um, just not having that idea of stability in your life. You sort of have to expect the unexpected and accept huge lifestyle changes on a moment's notice and just move beyond that and uh, roll with the punches. What about you, Dan? Maintaining the ability to sing that much, especially with Imagine Dragons, it's just a lot of dynamic singing. It, it, it's really difficult. And I also have two autoimmune diseases. I have uh, ankylosing spondylitis and ulcerative colitis. I have to go on a super strict diet on the road. Um, basically, I eat vegetables and fish and chicken. For some people, I know that they already choose that diet on their own. But for me, I, I, I have a hard time. Uh, so, Ben, what is something you bought that you now completely regret buying? Well, not being on an anti-inflammatory diet like Dan, as soon as we got done with our 15-hour bus ride yesterday, I ran into the nearest diner and got a Juicy Lucy, the famous uh, Minneapolis hamburger with the cheese on the inside. Also, some Parmesan cheese tater tots and some barbecue chicken nachos. And I haven't decided which one of those I regret, but certainly all three was was too much. <laughs> That sounds so good to me right now. Dan, Yeah. when did you first realize that music could be an actual career for you? I don't know if I've ever had a full realization of that. I feel like as a musician, you're always thinking tomorrow everything is going to just collapse. And that's kind of the drive that keeps you going. Yeah, it's never seemed like a good decision professionally. Ben, what is your most prized possession? My most prized possession is my 1926 Martin Triple acoustic guitar that is gorgeous, and I just pick it up and strum an open G chord, and the sound makes everything all right. How about you, Dan? What's your uh, most prized possession? Well, I think the obvious answer would be say my children, but I think you, I don't know if I call them a possession. Your children are not a possession. I know. I was just, well, I was getting to that. I was going to say they're probably not a possession. That being said, probably my '67 Mustang. Ben, what was your very first job? My very first job was helping my dad haul concrete hoses out in uh, the muddy hills of Northern California. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Yeah, and we'd have to, it'd always be like you start at 5.30 in the morning. Right, that's what I was going to say. But, you know, you'd be done before your friends were uh, waking up and have a little money in my pocket. Mm-hmm. How about point. you, Dan? What was your very first job? Well, it was much better than that. I was a janitor. Ooh. <laughs> I was a janitor at a law firm. Okay, um, Ben, what is something everyone should own, no matter the cost? 
I think that everybody should own a comfortable pair of shoes. I think that uh, going through life every day, you're a little bit happier if your feet are well taken care of. Dan, what do you think is something that everybody should own, no matter the cost? This is such a cliche answer, but it's the honest answer. A, a home, right? A place of refuge to get away from everything in the world and to actually have solace and peace. So I'd say everybody deserves to have a roof over their head, a house. Okay, Ben, this is the final question. Ooh. Red alert. Red alert, final question. Uh, what advice do you wish someone had given you before you started your career? I kind of wish somebody had told me to not be afraid to make choices that will lead to your own happiness. I think that, you know, if you're living your life for other people, trying to live up to their expectations and their idea of what you should be, you're never really going to be happy. And those people that really love you, they'll be there to support you when you are on the other side of these difficult choices. I feel like I'm living in the twilight zone right now because you almost word for word said what I was thinking. Boom. That's Ben McKee and Dan Reynolds of the band Imagine Dragons. Eliza Mills produced this edition of the quiz. You can listen to past quiz takers on our website, marketplace.org. Just search for Marketplace Quiz. What makes a song a hit? The answer may lie in how people listen to it. The music industry will soon give more weight to paid streaming rather than free when figuring out what's popular. You may have had two to three million plays of your song, but now it counts less on the Hot 100. The whole point of the Hot Charts was to reflect what people were listening to, not necessarily what was making the record labels money. That's next time on Marketplace Weekend. And that's it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer, and Charlton Thorpe is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Amy Scott. Thanks for listening. This is APM.